So why don't we get started? We're, uh, we're in the Gospel of John. We're going to be in chapter 7 this morning, um, picking up sort of in the middle of the chapter. Let's, uh, why don't we go ahead and just, I'll, I'll read the text that we'll be considering this morning, and uh, then we'll jump in. So if you're able to stand, please do so to honor God's Word. We're going to be picking up in verse 25 of chapter 7 of John's Gospel. This is what John writes. Some of the people of Jerusalem therefore said, is not, the, is, is not this the man whom they seek to kill? And here he is speaking openly, and they say nothing to him. Can it be that the authorities really know that, that this is the Christ? But we know where this man comes from, and when the Christ appears, no one will know where he comes from. So Jesus proclaimed as he taught in the temple, You know me, and you know where I come from, but I have not come of my own accord. He who sent me is true, and him... You do not know. I know him, for I come from him, and he sent me. So they were seeking to arrest him, but no one laid a hand on him, because his hour had not yet come. Yet many of the people believed in him. They said, When the Christ appears, will he do more signs than this man has done? The Pharisees heard the crowd muttering these things about him, and the chief priests and Pharisees sent officers to arrest him. Jesus then said, I will be with you a little longer, and then I am going to him who sent me. You will seek me, and you will not find me. Where I, am, where I am, you cannot come. The Jews said to one another, Where does this man intend to go that we will not find him? Does he intend to go to the, to the dispersion among the Greeks and teach the Greeks? What does he mean by saying, You will seek me, and you will not find me, and where I am, you cannot come? This is the word of the Lord can be seated. Father, I pray that, uh, that, that by your spirit, from your word, for the glory of your son, that you would teach us this morning. And we pray this uh, in his name. Amen. So we've been in, uh, we've been in chapter seven for a couple of weeks now. Um, if you recall, when we began, David introduced the chapter that, and told us that Jesus was, uh, was going to Jerusalem for the Feast of Booths. He had this conversation with his brothers. His brothers encouraged him to go. They said, Jesus, if you're going to do some of these works that you've been doing, you ought to do it in front of the biggest crowd possible. There's going to be a lot of people gathered in Jerusalem for this feast. You should go. You should make yourself known. And uh, the, the amazing thing about that, that encouragement is that it came not from a standpoint, not from a perspective of belief, but it came directly from a perspective of, of unbelief. John tells us, for not even his brothers believed in him. And then Jesus, in his own timing, goes to the feast. He goes about midway through and he stands up in the temple and he begins, he begins to teach. And that's where we find Jesus this week as well. He started teaching. Uh, David also told us at the beginning of this chapter that there were a lot of questions and answers, questions being asked and answers being given. Um, last week, there was one question in particular that I think rose to the top of the questions that were asked. These people were listening to Jesus' teaching, and they were, they were really impressed by what he was saying. They said, this man must have learned somewhere. But, but we don't know where he went to school. 
Where did he get all of this learning that, that he's expounding to us? It's, it sounds right. Jesus, would you, would you cite your sources? And Jesus did. He said, I, I, I'm teaching the teaching of the one who sent me. In a sense, he's saying, my teaching, the school that I went to was, was in heaven. But even more than that, it, it was more than a place. It was, uh, it was a, a person. He said, my teaching comes from, from the Father. We're going to see two other questions asked in our, passages, in our passage this week. Um, similar questions in a way. There's a question of where Jesus came from, a question of Jesus' origin. And there's a question about where he's going. His, his destination. And I think the answers to those questions are the same as the answer to the first. Where did he come from? Well, he, he came from heaven. He came from, he came from the Father. And where's he going? Well, he's going to the same place. He's going to the same person. That's what we're going to see this week. Jesus is going to, he's going to address those questions and he's going to have some pointed things to say to the people that he's speaking to. He's going to tell them, I'm going to tell you where I come from, and I'm going to tell you why you don't know where it is that I come from. And then I'm going to tell you where I'm going, and I'm going to tell you why you can't go there. Really, these are sobering words from Jesus to this crowd of people that have gathered to listen to him as he teaches in the temple. Um, it begins this way in verse 25. It says, Some of the people of Jerusalem therefore said, is, is this not the man whom they seek to kill? Now, for me, this immediately r- rang a bell in my head because last week we saw Jesus mentioning that people were planning to kill Jesus. That was uh, back, in, uh, back in verse 19. He says this to the crowd that's gathered. Has, has not Moses given you the law, yet none of you keeps the law? Why do you seek to kill me? And the reaction of the people then was, what are you talking about? You must be crazy. You must have a, you must have a demon. We're not trying to kill you. Now, there, there are two possibilities here. Either they really didn't know, or they knew and they were trying to cover. I honestly don't know which one, is, which one it is. Uh, it, it says that there was a crowd that answered. My guess is that as the crowd had gathered, remember, we're in Jerusalem for the Feast of Booths, which would have gathered people from all over. Um, think about the, the Feast of Pentecost in Acts, where there were people from all around the known world there speaking different languages. You remember, remember that story? Well, I, I think something similar was happening here. I, I, my guess is that, that most of the people in the crowd weren't aware of this plot against Jesus' life. So it's interesting to me that verse 25 begins that with some of the people of Jerusalem. And these people of Jerusalem, these, um, these locals, if you will, they seem to be a little bit more in the know because they say, isn't this the man that they're trying to kill? So they're aware of this plot against Jesus' life, and, and the fact that they're aware of it raises some questions in their minds. They're, they're a little bit confused. They say, we're getting some mixed signals from our leadership. The authorities are, are planning to kill this man because of what he teaches, and yet here he is, he's in the temple, he's, he's, speaking, he's speaking openly, and they are not confronting him. They're just letting him teach. And it raises this question, a, a fair question, I think, in their minds. Can it be 
that the, earth, that the authorities really know that this is the Christ. So ironic, isn't it? That, that, that the Messiah is standing there in their midst and he's teaching them and, and, it, and, and it dawns on them that maybe, maybe this is him. Maybe this is the one who was sent. And then they immediately began, begin to, to rationalize. They, they make this mistaken assumption. They say, but, but wait a second. <laughs> we know where this man comes from. We've seen that before, right? We've seen that people making an assumption about who Jesus is and what his origins are. It goes all the way back to chapter 1 when, when Philip goes to Nathaniel and he says, we found the Messiah. He's Jesus. He's Jesus of, of Nazareth. Now, during those times, that, that's the way you would have been identified. People didn't have surnames, didn't have last names. So if there was more than one Jesus, there was Jesus of so-and-so of this place and Jesus of this place. Jesus had become identified. He'd been known as Jesus of Nazareth. So that, that may be what they're talking about. They may say, well, you know, we know who this Jesus is. He's, he's from Nazareth. But then they had this other little wrinkle. It says, we know where, the man, where this man comes from, and when the Christ appears, no one will know where he comes from. What are they talking about there? Um, it, there was a common rabbinic teaching uh, in, in uh, what's known as Second Temple Judaism and it would have carried over here into the, into the first century that, um, that the, the Messiah was going to sort of appear out of nowhere, <laughs> that he was going to be hidden, and then when he appeared, it was going to be suddenly. I think uh, perhaps there's at least in part a, a, a misinterpretation of what it says in Malachi, verse 1 of chapter 3 says this, and the Lord whom you seek will, will suddenly come to his temple. I think there is a, a sense, a misinterpretation here, a mistaken interpretation about who Jesus is and where he's coming from. The reason I say that in part is that it, it seems like in other cases it was common knowledge about Jesus, where Jesus come, came from. If you think back to the nativity story in Matthew, when the wise men come to Jerusalem and they ask Herod, hey, we're trying to find one who was born the king of the Jews. Where should we look? Herod consults with his scholars, and his scholars say, well, it says in Micah. Micah 5.2 says that he will be born in Bethlehem. You should go to Bethlehem. Okay. Uh, we see that, that same kind of idea uh, later on in our, uh, in our passage um, in chapter 7. They're, again, talking about Jesus. They're disputing about who he is. Some say he's the prophet. Some say he's the Christ. And some say, hey, wait a minute. The Christ isn't supposed to come from Galilee. The scripture says that the Christ comes from the offspring of David and comes from, from Bethlehem. So there's all of this confusion in what they're talking about. They're, they're both confused about his, his origins in terms of whether or not he is going to be known and also his origins about where he is actually supposed to come from. You know, you and I, we know the rest of the story. We know that Jesus was born in Bethlehem. And we know that he came to seek and to save the lost. We know that he is the Messiah, but they're, they're, just, they're just not sure. So Jesus uh, responds to that. It's, and it's interesting to me, he doesn't respond in a way that is intended to correct their misconceptions. He doesn't respond in a way that is meant to correct what they believe about him and about where he's from. He, he, rather than correcting, he, he redirects. 
disciples. It says this in verse 28. So Jesus proclaimed as he taught in the temple, you know me and you know where I'm from, but I've not come of my own accord. He who sent me is true and him you do not know. I know him for I come from him and he sent me. Uh, this, this word um, that's, the, that's uh, translated here, proclaimed, that's translated later on in the uh, same chapter, verse 37, is, is cried out. Jesus has something important that he wants to say. He's, he's in the temple teaching, and he, he proclaims, he makes, in, in reality, a proclamation about, about who he is and about where he's from. It's uh, interesting. He says this. He says, you know me and you know where I'm from. One of the things we lack here is, um, is tone of voice. Kind of makes me curious. Is Jesus speaking here maybe just a bit ironically? As if he would say, oh, you know me? And you know where I'm from? You really think so? Uh, it may be that he's expressing that kind of ironic response. I, I, I'm not sure. It may just be that he's acknowledging, yeah, you, you have some information about me. You, you know, yeah, I've, I've lived most of my life in Galilee, and you, and you know that, I have, that, I'm, that I'm from Nazareth. Yeah, you know that, but that's all you know, and that's just the tip of the iceberg when it comes to knowledge about me. Again, he doesn't correct that misconception. He doesn't direct, directly try to correct their misconception about where he's from. He just gives them a... Well, a solid dose of, of reality. He says this, again, verse 29, he says, uh, well, the end of verse uh, uh, 28, he who sent me is true, him you do not know, I know him, for I come from him, and he sent me. So he's not, he's not even addressing his earthly origins, which seems to be what they're mostly concerned with. He says, it's really not significant. It really doesn't make that much difference where I am here. What, what, it makes, what makes the difference is that I, where I am from, from there. That I've come from the one who sent me. I've come from heaven sent by the Father. And again, there's this, this huge reality check for them. He says that they don't know where Jesus comes from because they don't know the Father. They don't know where Jesus comes from because they, they don't know the Father. It, it, again, these are, these are sobering words. And I think for the people who are listening, there would have been a reaction, what, what are you talking about? We know, we know God. We're God's people. We're God's chosen ones. How can you say we don't know the Father? He again expresses what, what, I, what I see as his, his dependence on the Father. He says, I haven't, I haven't come of my own accord. I'm not here on my own. I didn't send myself. I'm dependent on the one who sent me. Again, it's, it reminds me of what he said uh, earlier as he was teaching. Back in verse 17, he said this, Jesus speaking, if anyone's will is to do God's will, he will know whether the teaching is from God and whether I'm speaking on my own authority. The one who speaks on his own authority seeks his own glory, but the one who seeks the glory of him who sent him is true, and in him there's 
There's no falsehood. See, what Jesus is saying is that he is true, that his words can be counted on as reliable because the one who sent him is true. He was sent by one who is true, therefore he now comes and speaks truth. So for me, this is, this is the bottom line of what Jesus is saying here. He's saying, you don't know me. You think you know me, but you don't really know me. And they don't know him, and they don't know where he comes from, because they don't know the Father. They don't know Jesus. They don't know Jesus' origin. They don't know where he comes from because, because they don't know the Father. Again, it reminded me of something that Jesus said before. He, this is from, um, from chapter 5. Again, he's teaching and, and trying to, to point people in the, in, in the right direction. And he said this. This is from verse 37 of John chapter 5. He said, The Father who sent me, is born witness about me, his voice you've never heard, his form you've never seen. You do not have his word abiding in you, for you don't believe in the one whom he sent. Again, there's this connection between believing in Jesus as a result of knowing and believing in God. Jesus is simply saying, you don't know him, so you can't know me. If you knew him, you'd know me, but you don't know him, so you can't know me, and you can't know where I've come from. My origins will remain a mystery to you because you don't know the one who sent me. And we'll note there's a, there's a mixed response to these words. That's often true when Jesus teaches, when Jesus speaks, there is a mixed response. There are some who, um, who want to arrest him. It says verse 30, so they were seeking to arrest him, but no one laid a hand on him because his hour had not yet come. Uh, it seems to me that this is, um, this is intended to be sort of a, a citizen's arrest. Again, he's, just ga- he's in the temple, he's with the, the crowd, and some of them think, let's, let's seize him. In fact, some of the translations um, use the word seize instead of arrest at this point, trying to make that distinction. This isn't an official arrest necessarily. It's just say, let's, let's, lay, ha- let's lay hands on this man. Let's, let's lay hold of him. Let's take him to the authorities. What he's saying is, is, is blasphemous. What he's saying is, it's, it's not true. He's leading people astray. We need to take this man and hold him to account. But then there are others. Yet, many of the people believed in him. Yet many of the people, because of what he said, they, they, they believed in him. And they said, when the Christ appears, will he do more signs than this man has done? Now, if you've been around for our study in John, your antenna should have gone up at this point. Because when it says that many believed in him, but when they believed in him, they talked about signs. We've seen this before, haven't we? People who believed in Jesus because of the signs, and yet somehow this belief that was sign-driven, that was based upon signs, was somehow, somehow deficient. It, it was a belief that believed in what Jesus could do, but it wasn't a belief in Jesus himself. A few weeks back, uh, uh, Chris cited me as a source and said that we can call this easy believism. 
I just wanted you to know, just to, just to be in full disclosure, I, that that term doesn't didn't originate with with me. Um, this this is this is a brief parenthesis, um, but it's on it's on topic, so that's okay. Um, I, I came across this. Um, it's a blog post from Grace to You. Um, I think it's actually um, a, a snippet from the Gospel According to Jesus by John MacArthur. I think he's the writer of this. So um, this is what MacArthur says. The gospel Jesus proclaimed was a call to discipleship, a call to follow him in dismiss, um, I'm sorry, submissive obedience, not just a plea to make a decision or pray a prayer. Jesus' message liberated people from the bondage of their sin while it confronted and condemned hypocrisy. It was an offer of eternal life and forgiveness for repentant sinners, but at the same time, it was a rebuke to outwardly religious people whose lives were devoid of true righteousness. It put sinners on notice that they must turn from sin and embrace God's righteousness. It was, in every sense, good news, yet it was anything but easy believism. So there you go. It wasn't me. MacArthur, at least, used the term. I think it might have originated with Billy Graham, but I'm not sure. I'm, not, I'm, not sure, uh, I'm also not sure whether that's what we're seeing here. We're not told anything else about these particular people, these people who believed. We're kind of left in suspense. Was this a saving faith that they experienced here? Or was it the kind of faith that we've seen before that looked at signs, but was like the soil, like the seed in the soil that was, uh, that was not deeply rooted. Uh, it's hard to say. It's just, a, for me, always a cautionary tale, a cautionary sign when I see the word signs associated with belief. Just a reminder that we shouldn't terminate on what Jesus can do. Our faith shouldn't terminate on what Jesus can or has done but on who he is, on his person. So the uh, people that believed are, are talking about Jesus, and the Pharisees pick up this, uh, as John calls this, the, the, the muttering of this crowd. Uh, I guess maybe they're hearing both sides, some of the people who think that Jesus should be arrested and some people that think that Jesus should be believed. And the Pharisees decide, well, maybe we should do something about this. It says in verse 22, the Pharisees heard the crowd muttering these things about him, and the chief priests and Pharisees sent officers to arrest him. So we went from this attempted um, citizen's arrest to now something a little bit more official. The mention of the chief priests and the Pharisees kind of makes me think maybe there was a, a, a little a quick uh, meeting, assembly of the Sanhedrin. They got together. They said, we've got to do something about this Jesus. We already have this plan in place to do something about him. Maybe it's the time to put the plan into execution. Let's send some of the temple guards. Let's pick this man up. Let's bring him in. Uh, again, it's really interesting. This, this delegation goes and is sent in verse 32, and there's no more mention of them until, uh, I don't know, 10 verses later. Jesus keeps talking. Jesus keeps teaching. The way I picture it, the temple guards come, and they become part of the, part of the crowd, part of the audience. In fact, I think that's what we see later, because when the temple guards return without Jesus... The Pharisees and the chief priests say, why didn't you bring him? And they say, no one ever spoke like this man. It's an amazing thing, but we'll get back. We'll get to that. I think that's next week. So don't want to step on anybody's toes. 
Uh, yeah, this, uh, this attempted arrest, as we'll see, it's going to be no more successful than the previous one or any of the previous ones. We were told why, by the way. I didn't mention it in the verse where it came, but it says that Jesus, that his hour had not yet come. The reason that when they tried to arrest him, they couldn't do it is because his hour had not yet come. Another thing that we've seen before, that Jesus is sovereignly in control of the timing of his arrest, that, that Jesus is not going to be taken until it is, it is time. This is the way John, uh, John puts it, or actually Jesus speaking in John chapter 10. Jesus says this, I lay down my life that I might take it up again. No one takes it from me, but I lay it down of my own accord. I have authority to lay it down, and I have authority to take it up again. It's breathtaking, isn't it? The sovereignty, the authority of Jesus saying, you know, guys, you can come and try to arrest me if you want to. And when it's time, you will. When it's time, you will take me. When it's time, you will try me. When it's time, you will beat me and scourge me and put a crown of thorns on my head and spit on me. All that will happen. You're going you're gonna to nail me to a Roman cross. Yeah, this plan that you have to kill me, yeah, it's going to happen. You're going to be successful, quote unquote, in your attempt. But it's all on my timing. It's all under my authority. You're not going to take me. You're not going to arrest me one moment sooner than I allow it. And that's what he says, isn't it? He says, I'll be with you a little longer. I'm going to be with you just a little bit longer. If, we, if, if our timeline is right, if he, we know he's here for the, for the Feast of Tabernacles, in about six months will be the Passover. If that's the Passover where the crucifixion takes place, then he has about six months left. So he'll be with them just a little bit longer. And he says, when that time is over, when my time here with you is completed, I'm going back to the Father. So yes, you will arrest me. Yes, you will try me. Yes, you will beat and scourge me. Yes, you will nail me to a cross. Yes, I will die. But when I do that, it's because I'm going back to the one who sent me. I'm going to use you as a tool by which my purposes will be accomplished. It's really, uh, really an amazing thing. Yeah, they'll, they'll succeed, but, uh, but only on, on his terms. And of course... This statement raises another question. They all gather around and huddle again, and the Jews say to one another, well, where does this man intend to go that we can't find him? Does he intend to go to the dispersion among the Greeks and teach the Greeks? What does he mean when he says, you're going to seek me and not find me, and where I am, you can't come? Well, this other mistaken impression. They think, well, if he's not going to stay here, if he's not staying in Jerusalem, or if he's not staying in, in Palestine, if he's not going back up to, to, to Galilee, where, where is he going to go? Well, maybe he's going to go out of the country. Maybe he's seeing that his, that his mission here or his ministry here isn't being very effective. Maybe he's going to go try somewhere else. 
you know, maybe, maybe he's, rec- he's realizing that he's a, he's a false teacher and he better leave here because his teaching isn't going to be accepted here. We're not going to stand for this. He better, he better go. Again, it's, it's ironic, isn't it? Because Jesus isn't going to this person. Jesus isn't going to the Greeks. Well, at least he's not going personally. But he is going, in a sense, isn't he? I mean, isn't that where his body went next? Not, not his physical body, but his body? The, his church? Didn't, didn't they go to the dispersion? Didn't they go to, to Asia and, and, to, and to Italy and, and, and maybe as far as, as Spain? You know, Jesus didn't go there personally, but he went there. His, his hands and his feet went. They went to the Greeks. They taught the Greeks. You gotta, again, think of this in context. This would have been unthinkable for these Jewish people. I mean, why in the world would he go to the Greeks? Those, those pagan Gentiles, why would he go to them? Must be like a last resort. But in fact, that was Jesus' plan all along, wasn't it? To, to gather to himself a flock that was both Jewish and Gentile? That was his plan all along. And, and it, it, this is a sense in which I think we see people saying something, that saying more than they knew they were saying. Well, yes, he is. Not, not in this lifetime, not Jesus personally, not in his body, but his body, his hands and feet, that's exactly where they're going. That's exactly what they're going to do. There is this, um, this air of finality here, this, this statement that Jesus makes, you're going to seek me, you will seek me and you will not find me, and where I am you cannot come. You will seek me, and you won't find me, and you can't go where I'm going. Now, I don't get the sense that this, these words fell on the crowd in, in the way perhaps that they should have. There's this, there's this final statement that Jesus makes. It's as if a, a, a curtain has been drawn or a, or a, or a door has closed. I... Um, I read this in one of the one commentary that I was looking at. Um, I'll put it this way, if I can get it open. He says these these opponents are fulfilling a pattern from the prophetic and wisdom traditions. Amos says the days are coming when people will search for the word of the Lord and not find it. In Amos eight twelve, Hosea says that people's hearts are full of prostitution and arrogance. And so they will seek the Lord but not find him since he's, he has withdrawn himself from them. Hosea 5, 3 through 6. Wisdom says, then they will call to me, but I will not answer. They will look for me, but will not find me. Since they hated knowledge and did not choose to fear the Lord, since they would not accept my advice and spurn my rebuke, they will eat the fruit of their ways and be filled with the fruit of their schemes. Proverbs 1, 28 through 31. Uh, I'm not God, so I'm not ready to pronounce final judgment on these people. <laughs> you know, my hope is, my prayer is that some of them found their way to Jesus. Uh, 
that they came to true and saving faith. But there is a sense here in what Jesus is saying to these people is, you don't know where I'm going and you can't go. And you can't go because you don't believe. I don't want to leave that as the end of the story because there is more to the story. And, and I'm going to go and step on some more toes. We're, we're, I'm just going to take us forward into, into the gospel and close this way. Because it, Jesus has more to say on this topic about where he's going and about who can go with him. This is from John chapter 13. In John chapter 13, Jesus is uh, in the upper room with his, with his disciples, with, with the twelve. And he says this in verse 33, little children, yet a little while I'm with you, you will seek me, and just as I said to the Jews, so now I also say to you, where I'm going, you cannot come. I think what he's doing here in verse 33 of chapter 13 is quoting what he said in chapter 7. He said, I told the Jews, I told the Jews, and now I'm telling you, where I'm going, you cannot come. This um, prompts a reaction from Simon Peter, which is understandable. Simon Peter said to him, this is verse 36, Lord, where are you going? And Jesus answered him, where I'm going, you cannot follow me now. He could have ended it, you cannot follow me. Then he said, now, but you will follow afterward. And then, in a, I think, what, a very familiar passage at the beginning of chapter 14, let not your hearts be troubled. Believe in God, believe also in me. In my Father's house are many rooms. If it were not so, would I have told you that I go to prepare a place for you? And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and will take you to myself, that where I am, you may be also. And then, and then this. This is uh, from chapter 17. What's known as Jesus' high priestly prayer. He's praying here. This just in verse twenty, Jesus prays this. I don't ask for these only. I don't ask for these men in this room right now only, but also for those who will believe in me through their word. To me, those are some of the most amazing words in all of Scripture because what that says is that Jesus is praying for me. He says, I'm not praying just for, for these 12 men gathered here with me right now, but I'm praying for every person who throughout history will believe because of their word. So that's me. It's you, if you believed, because of their word. And this is what he prays for them. This is in verse 24. Father, I desire that they also whom you've given to me, may be with me where I am. Father, I desire that they also, whom you've given me, may be with me where I am. See, the reality for the folks that Jesus was talking to there as he taught in the temple was that they didn't know him. They didn't know the Father. They didn't know His origins. They didn't know His destination, and they couldn't go where He was going because they didn't believe. But the reality for us is that if we believe, we can go. 
As Jesus has gone to prepare a place, he's preparing a place for everyone who puts their faith in him. A true saving faith in him and in the one who sent him. Let's pray.